this computer. Hello, welcome. I'm Roger Royce, and this is the 10,000 Startups Podcast, where we bring you interviews with startup company lawyers on various issues on startup law that you as a founder or as a VC investor in a startup company really need to know about. So we're practicing right here in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, a heart of the technology universe. So of course, one of the issues that are areas that looms large with us is technology and intellectual property protection. So today we're going to talk to Phil Elbert, is a partner in an intellectual property practice group in our San Francisco office at Haynes Boone LLP. He's a patent lawyer, primarily focuses on patent prosecution, uh, including other countries. He sets up internal patent review processes, uh, evaluates patents of others and due diligence, or also for purchase, licensing, design, uh, and addresses intellectual property components of all sorts of transactions, acquisitions, or investments. And that's a big part of what we're going to talk to talk about today. Phil also has quite a bit of experience working with companies in critical technologies, such as streaming, network protocols, network securities, artificial intelligence, blockchain, animation, and internet of things. Phil is like a lot of patent lawyers, Phil's an engineer first by training. He previously was at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and even founded a company that produced semi-custom software and turnkey computer systems for accounting and bank operations. So thanks for being here, Phil. I'm uh, anxious to, to hear about this uh, talk we're going to have because I'm a corporate lawyer, not an IP lawyer, so I always learn stuff when I talk to people like you. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And I, I kind of consider this a, uh, a a public service because so many times I get brought in for the IP aspects of a transaction and I just go, oh, I wish we could roll back the clock to months or days earlier and fix things so that uh, deals become a lot smoother. But yeah. It isn't that the truth? I mean, I always tell people that mistakes are free until you get into due diligence because we can fix them. You know, once you're in due diligence, then it becomes a big production. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's true in corporate, and we'll find out if it's true in IP. So let's uh, talk about maybe one of the biggest value adds you have here is just getting our startup company clients or even the investor clients through a due diligence review. Uh, what does that look like? What should they expect? What should they do to prepare even before they get there? Well, I think this simply put is to do a, uh, a dry run. Um, typically, um, uh, you know, VCs and acquirers um, and, and other people who are kind of involved in the M&A that are pushing it from the other end, they all, well, you know, start off with a checklist of of things that they're going to have their counsel check. And if we can um, get with the client and say, okay, this is what the the, the checklist they're going to throw at you. Let's make sure there's no uh, flags and that you can check all the boxes. And that's um, you know that brings up um, issues that can be. You know, fixed ahead of time, or if not fixed, at least um, can be positioned properly as to how how, how to address them um, when 
the um, the other side starts asking the questions and their due diligence. What? What? Yeah. Can you, can you maybe give me an example of from real life as to what that would look like uh, of experiences you've had? Well, I, you know, one, one that comes to mind is um, that we were doing a. Uh, due diligence, the company was going to be acquired wholesale. So everything was going to be acquired. Um, and so in the due diligence, they go through and make sure that a, do you own all the IP that's necessary? Um, and do you own all the exclusive rights that we might be interested in acquiring so that we could exploit? Um, and um, it, it, came through looking through the files and go, well, for some reason in this country, um, other than the US, you randomly granted an exclusive license to one of your vendors and there just wasn't any real business reason for it. And it was a giveaway. So it did cause a little bit of a heartburn. And that's something that you know is best in advance dealt with by say going back to the vendor and saying you know we granted you this license but you're not really in this business can we um buy you out and um and and those things kind of uh um uh, come up with surprising frequency yeah I'll, I'll bet um and would you agree with what I said about how it's relatively easy to fix these mistakes early on, but it becomes a big production once you get into due diligence? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it's kind of like if you're um, if say you're building a uh, uh, a town out in the middle of nowhere, you need to buy up all the uh, um, nearby properties, and uh, say you found out that you forgot this. Uh, five acres and it's in the middle of the, this town you're trying to build. Well, they, that uh, once that, that, that owner of those five acres gets wind that they're the, uh, they're the showstopper, it gets a little more expensive to negotiate out that. Yeah, that's for sure. Especially when you get a gun to your head and you're under a time pressure and you just got to get this stuff wrapped up, you know, in a very short period of time. So you can close your deal. Uh, you just don't want to be in that position. Talk about losing leverage, right? Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, the, since you are a patent lawyer, um, it's always been kind of a mystery to me. And, and the question always comes up. People say, well, should I patent this or should I rely on trade secret protection? And I know the answer is, well, you should patent you know, what you can. That gives you the most protection. But the bigger question here is, I know you can draft those patents a little bit differently. Uh, you have a lot of, there's a lot of art in that. And I always thought that, gee, we want to draft the patent, you know, to, you know, to keep competitors out of the business, first of all, and then position yourself for exit. But what are some tips that you could give our entrepreneurs on how to have a patent portfolio um, that patents the right stuff and is drafted the right way? Uh, that you can basically give yourself that monopoly for as long as possible and as extensively as possible. Well, I think the the simplest way to put this is 
you're not filing a patent to describe your product line. You're filing a patent to describe the products that your competitors will pull their hair out once they realize they can't freely infringe on that uh, technology. So not so much uh, saying, yeah, we've invented this thing and this is exactly how it works and we're patenting exactly our product, but to think more broadly about the entire category um, so that it does cover variations that competitors might try to uh, um, duplicate from your technology. Okay. Um, where do you, you know, every company I work with, they have trade secret and they have patent. And a question always comes up, you know, should I, should I patent this or should I rely on trade secret? Where do you come down on that generally? Well, if it's something that you can keep secret indefinitely, like the formula for your soda or which spices you're going to use for your chicken, um, then you, you don't want to uh, um, uh, patent that because patent term is, is 20 years limited. And if you kind of look like you, you have to keep your business going for 100 years, well, then you keep it as a trade secret. But if it's something that uh, people are going to discover anyway, then really your only option is um, is, is patent protection. And another thing about um, about that startups um, need to consider is, oh yeah, you know, you go and you get patents to kind of put fences and barriers in, to entry, and, um, and and that helps when it comes to an exit. Um, but maybe you're saying, well. We are a startup, and um, and even as we grow, we don't want to get in a full-blown um, uh, patent litigation against major competitors. But the building a patent portfolio also is, uh, gives the patent holder um, the ability, without knowing or without any effort, of essentially um, uh, getting exclusivity because the competitor goes to their VCs, their VCs do the due diligence and say, how do you explain these, the, these existing patents? And if, the, if your competitor can't explain how they're gonna get around your patents, um, they don't get funded, they don't stay in business. And it's, um, it, it, it didn't cost you anything to exert your patents uh, against them. You can't do that so much with trade secrets because maybe uh, your, your competitors don't know what you're keeping secret. Gotcha. Let, 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 boy, you said a mouthful. Let, let, let me kind of parse that a little bit. <clears throat> on, on the litigation side, I, that's a great way to think about it. Once it's out there, you, you, you know, even if your competitor is willing to go roll the dice and bite you on a patent, what investor you know wants to put money into a company that's just going to go pay lawyers like me instead of develop their product? But you know, one of the objections I often run into, or concerns I should say, from startups is, gee, once I patent this, I'm telling the world how I do it, and big company they're just going to steal it and they're going to roll right over me, and they've got this big, huge, you know, litigation budget. Is that a real concern? Should people be worried about that? 
Um, not, not really. Um, if, if you have questionable patents, then okay, a sophisticated large company or small company is going to look at that and say, well, these are weak patents. They probably wouldn't survive. So we're just going to barrel on through. But if you have a decent patent portfolio, what's the cheaper option for a company that wants to be in that space? Is it either to come and work at a deal with you and give you lots of money or and, and get a certain license or give lots of money to their um, litigation counsel and not know how it's gonna turn out? Yeah, good point. So that thing you just mentioned, that that's a really good point. Isn't that how this usually resolves is we, you know, we just, we get a license, right? It's just cheaper. You know, let's just go license it or give them a license or something like that or split up ownership. Is that is that a pretty reasonable way to get get around these issues? Yeah. And, and, and it's surprising. The, if you look at the percentage of even cases that get litigated, patents that get litigated, um, how often the parties come to some agreement before you get to trial and and it works out that there is a business solution. It involves you know, uh, maybe uh, moving money around or trading patents or getting into some bigger um, business uh, arrangement. But if, uh, if, if both sides see what the patents involve and both sides are aware of what benefits would accrue to someone who would have a license, then you sit down and you, and you draft up a license and, and, and you, and you've got that. And, and for, for a small startup, if you're going up against a huge company and you're saying, look, you're infringing and we think you should pay us uh, two and a half billion dollars. Um, you're not going to get anywhere, but if it's a if it's a reasonable number, and it may be that hey, you know, this large company is saying, look, we'll we'll give you this money for a startup. That's you know that's money in that doesn't require uh, you know an equity commitment, and that's good. Gotcha. Um, you know, on that, what what do you, you you mentioned a license? I mean, that means somebody has to own it and somebody has to use it. How do you feel about joint ownership? that comes up once in a while um i i i would tend to think that in a in a in, a, in the case of where there's common um technological development where it's unclear which of multiple parties contributed um to the invention, then yeah, then joint ownership, and it's important to have a a joint ownership agreement among the parties. Because what's what's interesting about patents is if you have two co-owners of the patent, each one can can issue whatever license they want without a duty to account to the other, and that's just a race to the bottom. Um, so it's important to have an agreement among joint owners that said, everybody has to agree on the terms of the license. 
Yeah, and, and I think those joint ownership agreements, they can be relatively complex, can't they? Because you got to figure out management rights, you got to figure out who can use it, who has to pay a royalty, uh, probably what their fields of use are, et cetera. I mean, to, to me, it sounds like it's kind of the equivalent of just forming a limited liability company and drafting an operating agreement. Uh, but maybe you have a simpler way, but that's kind of where I end up on this usually. Uh, so, so it's not simple, but it's, um, uh, how do I put this? It's, it's routine because mm -hmm. we've, we've seen this before. And if you, if you hit all those, uh, those points that we deal with in every joint ownership agreement, uh, you should be fine. Um, okay. but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's been a lot of these, so, um, it's uh it's straightforward if you know right. what you're doing right and then on the litigation side you know one of the things that has one of the developments over the past several years is the idea of litigation financing and certainly we've had several clients you know they have this problem that gee what if we have to defend this patent or litigate it or enforce it <laughs> um and there are several funders out there. If you've got a good, strong patent, they'll put the money behind you and take a share of the proceeds. Uh, and that option is available. We've had clients use that um, as well. So something for startups who are a little worried about getting a patent to, to think about. You, you have some. You have some solutions. You know, I want to back up to something you mentioned about. Uh, gee, if they're never going to figure it out. Like you said, the formula to a soft drink, you know, Coca-Cola's, you know, formula has been around for more than 100 years, hasn't it? And if that had been patented, it would be out there in the public, which I kind of think it is anyway. I don't think it's, you know, that <clears throat> it's difficult to figure out how they do it. But their protection relies on the fact that it's secret. What what so what is the litmus test for you? And the words I always hear from patent lawyers is reverse engineer. <laughs> uh -huh. So what does that mean to say somebody can reverse engineer your product? And, and what's the significance of that? Well, if somebody can take, um, say, your your circuit board and um, disassemble it and, and reconstruct what the circuit is, or they can... Um, uh, Put your software into a test bed and 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 figure out how it's uh, how it's operating. Then that's kind of reverse engineering. And uh, at least in the U.S., according to the law, if you legitimately acquire a product and um, you reverse engineer to figure out how it works, that knowledge is not protected under trade secret. Um, so that's uh, um, that's considered legitimate technological development is reverse engineering. Okay, gotcha. So if something is easily reverse engineered, that would be a good candidate for patent protection, wouldn't it? Because that's the only way you protect it. It sounds like that's right. Yeah, I mean, you can you can protect your copyright in in the code itself. But for in terms of the functionality, you'd have to rely on uh, on patent protection there. Okay. Hey, let's shift gears a little bit um, and talk about uh, actually making sure the company has all these rights, especially the trade secret rights, uh, early in its its life. 
because you know companies can only act through people, right? And so you've got employees, you've got contractors, you've got consultants. And I guess first of all, if we don't have an agreement, they they pretty much people who the actual individuals who actually create the IP, they have rights to that, don't they? That that's right. If a patent application is filed with uh, one of the inventors as the applicant, uh, the presumption there is that the applicant owns that that patent right. Um, now we we deal with that with just our standard uh, employment agreement uh, and consultant agreement that has. Um, a, uh, uh, a patents and invention clause. And I always check um, with, with new clients, hey, do you have this in place? Do you always use these agreements? And, um, and fortunately, usually the answer is yes, we do. But then there's, uh, th th there's some things where you need to be, uh, as a startup, you need to be alerted to if there's about to be a falling out. Um, and or or you know a, a kind of a breakup of the original team you need to uh make sure that you have things buttoned up uh, before things fall apart and it doesn't have to be a kind of a negative thing maybe somebody decides i'm a founder i'm burned out i'm going to now go get on my sailboat and sail around the world and they're friendly but you you can't find them to to, to sign the routine documents. And so all that should be buttoned up before you part ways. Yeah, and, and it's kind of a disaster if you don't have that, uh, isn't it? Because you you got a technical consultant that's out there. What happens if they, let me just ask, what happens if you have a consultant uh, who's been out writing your code or working in the lab or, or building your IP and you don't have that invention assignment? Um, that, that's a problem. Um, yeah. you, you, you will have to end up, uh, paying extra for that. Um, the more typical case is where you do have the agreement, but then when the patents or applications are filed, they don't want to cooperate at all. And so you have to go to the patent office and, and essentially open up your file and show them that, yes, the company has all the rights. We've attempted to contact them. Here's how they are uncooperative. And that just creates a, a big mess on the public record. So much cleaner to say, hey, okay, I know you're, you're, you're leaving on your around the world sailing trip. Can you sign these documents before you go? Yeah, and, and that's why well-drafted invention assignments will always have that language that say they're going to cooperate uh, with you to the extent you have further proceedings. Um, okay, well, Phil, let me ask you, any other advice on intellectual property that you can give our startup clients or our investors and in startup clients before you go? Well, um earlier is sooner than better. And, um, and uh, while there are legal expenses involved, um, sometimes it's better to think ahead of time about what it is you need. Even if you aren't going to file all your patents at once, at least you, you have a strategy. 
Yeah, I think that's important. Having a strategy, uh, starting early, getting things documented, getting things cleaned up early on. Well, Phil, I want to thank you for being here. This is Roger Royce with 10,000 Startups. We're talking to Phil Elbert. He's a partner with Haynes Boone in San Francisco. He's a patent and intellectual property lawyer. Uh, and we just had a good discussion about the value of patents, how they differ from trade secrets, uh, and how you could protect yourself, especially preparing yourself for due diligence and financing. So again, thanks very much, Phil. Well, thanks for having me, Roger. All right. Bye. Bye.